Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger Show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Hey guys, welcome back to Starting Over Stronger, Divorce Survival and Recovery. It is 2021 and we are back at it, recording for for the first week of the month. And I am excited to be back doing pro interviews to bring you the important information you need as you go through divorce. I'm here today with Trina Knudsen. Trina is a family law attorney, a mediator, a fellow certified divorce coach, and she is the founder of The Laney Project which is a beautiful space in Olathe, Kansas, that's dedicated to the fine art of co-parenting well. And that is exactly what we are going to talk about today. And so I'll let Trina tell you more about that. I was introduced to her by a mutual therapist colleague of ours, Amy Heikenland, who was also on the SOS show talking about how to tell the kids. So look back if you haven't heard that episode. Trina, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here to share on this crucial topic. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about the Laney Project. Well, thanks so much for having me, Annie. Um, As you mentioned, I am a family law attorney. Before I went to law school, I was a foster care social worker. I got really frustrated with that system and um, decided I could better serve children by going to law school. And in working in the family law arena, I felt like the family law court was the child in need of care court with a different name, but no services in place. So I decided um, that I needed to make those services available to the community. And that is why I founded the Lane Project. Um, I continue to be a licensed social worker as well as an attorney. Um, my child advocate is my law firm, and about 90% of my practice is spent um, representing children in high conflict custody disputes. And then the other portion is spent doing mediation and case management work. Um, Lane is my stepdaughter, and that's who the Lane Project is named after. Um, Her mom is a phenomenal woman, and my now husband, but then boyfriend, um, met Lane three days before her first birthday. And raising her together has definitely been just that, a project. But (laughs) I seen great things um, when we work together and consider the other's perspective. And I was hoping um, to help other families going through similar situations to be able to benefit their children because divorce doesn't have to be a bad thing for children. It can help them become more resilient and stronger throughout life. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I want to make sure I didn't say that name wrong. And I think I might have heard you say Lane or is it Laney? It is the Lane Project, though we call okay. it Laney sometimes. And okay. It well, is the Lane Project. Okay. Good to know. Well, thank you again for being here, Trina. And before we start exploring co-parenting, my first question of all my guests is how divorce has affected their life personally. You've shared a little bit of that. Tell us anything else you'd like about your own story, if you have one, a story of divorce. And if not, you know, just how divorce in general has affected your life or directed your career. Well, very much so. It has impacted my life by way of my career. Um, I My parents have been married for um, going on 60 years. So I personally have not experienced divorce, but my husband is a child of divorce. Um, his um, lane is not a product to divorce, but his, um, 
Lane's mother and my husband were never together. So they're living with two separate homes. Mm -hmm. Um, But primarily um, in my work as an attorney, it has really (laughs) impacted me um, by way of seeing how much harm um, the court system unintentionally can do to children. Um, And so that has inspired me tremendously to um, be able to provide services for not only children, but families. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked for as an attorney since 2003. And I would say in 2015 is when I started realizing that I needed to do something different. And that's when I um, got in touch with the CDC and went through some trainings of becoming a certified divorce coach, because as a guardian ad litem, I can make recommendations um, to parents. And then the court ultimately, more often than not, adopted those recommendations. But I was not effectuating change for these families because the parents weren't understanding the reasoning behind those recommendations. Um, And so I decided I needed to help parents to come to conclusions, to come to answers themselves, as opposed to some professional pushing it down their throat. Um, And so in co-parenting, through the Lane Project, we take a more of a psychoeducational coaching approach. So because I truly believe that parents have the answers within, it's just all the muck from their toxic relationship that clouds their vision. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. It's always good to know that the professionals that we are working with understand on a personal level what we are going through. I think it makes them better professionals. So I appreciate you giving our listeners that glimpse of how you might relate to where they are right now. And I guess here we go. We're going to talk about co-parenting. I jokingly say this is one of the longest four-letter words of divorce (laughs) because it's not four letters, but definitely one of the hardest parts of divorce, especially in the beginning, like during and right after the divorce. And even more so if, like you said, the marriage fell into the realm of difficult or toxic with any kind of hot conflict issues. Um, I've heard it said that it takes three years for most people to find a rhythm in co-parenting year one. That's when everybody's figuring everything out, making all the big dumb mistakes. And year two is when we begin to kind of set better boundaries to make some repair attempts to address what went wrong, what went wrong in year one. And then year three, everyone is kind of finally settling into a new normal. Have you found any truth in that, at least in a general sense? In a general sense, most definitely. But I, through the Lane Project, am trying to um, advocate for some more proactive work for families Mm -hmm. um, as they go through divorce, because who rides that roller coaster of those three years? Yeah, right. And before you know it, we have a nine-year-old who is now a preteen that's ridden Mm -hmm. that roller coaster. So most definitely that is a pattern that I have noted and um, a very strong reason as to why I am really pushing for proactive um, involvement of parents and that psychoeducation so we could help um, the children not have to ride that three-year roller coaster. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. And successful parent co-parenting comes down to what we do and what we don't do. 
Um, and I, we're going to kind of dissect some of that here in, in detail, but what would you say are some of the most important things just right off the top of your head for people to do as for to co-parent well? I think it's really important um, that we trade judgment for curiosity and it's really easy to become reactive because our co-parent is going to trigger us. It, it's just mm-hmm. going to happen. Um, but really remembering to take a deep breath and get yourself out of fight, flight, or freeze mm-hmm. and trade judgment for curiosity. Um, another thing that I would real I use this term often is grieve the loss of control. Like the reality is, is you have never been able to control your co-parent. You certainly mm-hmm. aren't going to be able to now yeah. and accepting that your co-parent is going to parent differently than you and you can't manage that. You can't control it, but what you can control is how you respond to that. And that's going to um, have the greatest impact on your children. Um, Mm -hmm. And if they see how you can deal successfully with negativity, wow, you are teaching them a tremendous lesson. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. They have to let go of the past and be able to let go of that contempt and the criticism, the defensiveness, and just find a friend or family member or therapist to vent those frustrations to, but stop thinking that that kind of response is ever going to yield anything good for your co-parenting relationship and therefore your kids. And Annie, I completely agree with you need to find someone else to talk to. Um, But that's where I think a coach and a therapist or a neutral third party rather than um, necessarily a friend or relative, because I often find that our friends and relatives want to back us 100% and support us. And unfortunately, they don't always know how to do that. And they can keep us stuck. So when we're saying, oh, my God, he's such a you know what? Our, yeah. our friend or relative is saying, yeah, yeah, he or she is. Mm-hmm. I can't believe <laughs> did that. Rather than helping us to trade judgment for curiosity and perspective um, and to change our perspective. So right. um, I really think we need to be aware of those loved ones around us. Are they unintentionally keeping us stuck? Are they yeah. the best people to talk to and really be true um, to ourselves when we're asking that question. Yeah. And that's a little thing they call confirmation bias, where we look for information from someone who's going to tell us what we want to hear. And that is a really dangerous place to be. It's very interesting that you bring up confirmation bias because we um, have the BEH2O program is our co-parenting curriculum. And in one of our classes, we specifically discuss confirmation bias Okay. And the real importance of being aware of that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, you definitely, if you truly want positive change for yourself and for your kids, you've got to look at what you're doing that's not leading in that direction. And, you know, letting the past go is, is huge. It's, it's really easy to say that. It's really hard to do it. What do you think? you've seen in co-parenting has been effective for people in, you know, either recognizing that they're still holding on to the past or kind of trying to resolve that. 
What I found most effective is in working with co-parents, not addressing their case specifically, Mm -hmm. but more so because at that point, when you're discussing what's going on in their family's situation directly, they put themselves in fight, flight, or freeze, and they become really defensive. Yeah. So more so speaking in more general terms and providing some psychoeducation in reference to that If we're not necessarily calling the individual on the carpet, um, they are more open and receptive to taking on this information. And then also we had a beautiful, absolutely beautiful session um, in BEH 2O last night when we were helping the parents work on a commitment to their children. And some of the parents came up with some tremendous things. Um, And one of the things that one of the fathers said is, I think it would be great to jointly tell our children that mom's not perfect, I'm not perfect, um, but we are really truly doing our best. And we have all made mistakes. So more so rather than um, projecting negativity on your children, um, more so normalizing it in a way like, there's always changes and we're going to have to learn to adapt and it's not going to be perfect, but being open with our kids in reference to that um, and finding agreement. So like we were, what can we agree to? Well, we can both agree that we love our children, right? Mm -hmm. So focus on that. I don't know what's going on with dad, but what I do know is that he loves you very much. So you can fall back on those catch all phrases when you are triggered. Um, And so I think if co-parents can, as much as possible, rely on what they can agree to and use we language with their children, that our children are less likely to feel stuck in the middle of this ongoing conflict. Yeah. Do you think it's hard for parents to put themselves in their kids' shoes? I mean, I know, like you said, there's so much fight or flight brain, Um, but all of us were kids once. And I think if we can try to put ourselves in our kids' shoes and what they might need or want, that would help. I think that it is incredibly difficult for parents that are going through um, a divorce to put themselves in their children's shoes because of what you said of confirmation bias. So Oftentimes, parents get trapped in projecting their anxiety or their fears on their children. So my kids don't want to go to dad's house. They scream all the time that they want to be here with me. So is that because I'm projecting? I don't want them to leave on them. Um, Just thinking, what would a child be if she said, if the child said, I don't want to, I want to go see daddy. I'm so excited to see daddy. From a child's perspective, what is that child telling mom? I don't want to be here with you. Children are very egotistical, age appropriately egotistical. So they take a lot of blame. Um, but we at, we have been through so much. Parents have been through so much before they, during, before the divorce, during the divorce. I think it's really, really hard to step out of our own bodies and our own perspectives and um, put ourselves in the shoes of our children. But we really have to 
take that opportunity and do it. And Annie, I don't think that can happen when we're being triggered. Like, yeah. I don't think like if our kids say something that um, enlists in us, um, fight, flight, or freeze, or if our co-parent says that, unless we do the work beforehand, we are not going to be able to manage it when we are triggered. So then we step in the shoes of our children. I think parents are more able to do that when they are at a better place. So whether they're speaking to their divorce coach, whether they just completed a deep meditation and then Mm -hmm. processing it, outside of the presence of their co-parent, outside of the presence of their children. And the more they do that, the easier it's going to get when they're triggered. So it's just like the more you meditate, the easier it gets. You know, the more you practice riding the bike, the more, you know, it it becomes second nature to ride that bike. Um, If we could get parents to practice, you know, putting themselves in their child's shoes, it's going to become easier. Yeah. And what you really are boiling that down to is good self-care. I mean, if they're not taking care of themselves and learning good coping skills, you know, they're going to be reacting wrong because they're grieving the loss of a relationship or trying to navigate, you know, a crazy making, you know, environment or just dealing with all the normal personalizing and break and blaming for the breakup and all of those things. Right. So that self-care is more important than ever right now. I agree. It's completely essential because I believe that every parent wants to be the absolute best parent they possibly can be right. That that's what they want for their kids. That's what's in their children's best interest. But how the hell, excuse my vernacular, can you be the best parent you possibly can be if you're filled with resentment and anger and -hmm. you're tired because you didn't sleep all night? Like Those are things that in order to be the best parent that we can be, we have to be our best selves. Yeah. And um, I think, oh, wow, self-care is 110% necessary in order to do that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is communication. It's no doubt a huge part of successful co-parenting and probably 100% of the time we're dealing with a couple that chose to end their marriage. So in large part, it's safe to assume communication is a problem. So what have you seen be most effective in helping clients to grasp how to shift from all of the contempt and anger and blame and all of that to a, you know what, that's all done and we need to do something different going forward. So um, it's generally my stance that you need to streamline communication. And if co-parents are communicating all day, every day, Mm -hmm. or even if we're not prepared to receive communication, we're going to be um, less likely to handle that interaction appropriately. Mm -hmm. So I always suggest to my clients that they figure out, I call it kids news, um, that they send at least weekly kids news emails to one another where there's no unnecessary commentary, no lecturing. It's just simply to the point 
talking about school. And oftentimes parents say, well, you know, there's Skyward or whatever account that my co-parent can just look on that. But there's so much more to that. The kiddo is struggling with the word care and spelling care the right way. Or um, they're really struggling on um, finishing reading the book that they have a book report due in a week. Or so talking about that in the kids news email health, um, they had a bit of the sniffles. I had to give them Tylenol the day before Um, talking about their moods and their behaviors, Um, talking about big life events that are going on, Um, things like that. But you're not providing that information because of the fact that um, your co-parent can control what goes on in your household. You're providing that information because it is better coming from you than your child. Um, Your child may not relay that information or your child may relay that information and your co-parent may react in a negative way to receiving that information. And so in essence, you just set up a trap for your child to be the one that shares that information. Mm -hmm. So my suggestion is to have regular kids news exchanges. I usually recommend those happen um, an hour before transition or when convenient. Um, But that, you know, when they're coming. So you know to expect a kid's news email between the hours of four and six on Thursday. Then you're prepared. You put yourself in the right state of mind to receive that. But if your text messages or your email is ding, 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 or your OFW from your co-parent, you are going to be triggered from that. And you're less likely to give a positive response. But if you know it's only coming a couple times a week and you know when to expect it, you are more prepared to respond in appropriate manner to that information. So streamlining it um, and actually scheduling it and discussing in advance. But number two, I think it's important that you as co-parents tell your children that you will be communicating. Mom and I, we love you very much. Um, and we, there's different rules at each of our homes, mom and dad are different, but I do, I do expect that you respect mom's rules when you're there. I, and I expect that you respect my rules when you're here, but I want you to know that mom and I, we will be communicating. We will be communicating. And before you go back and forth, mom will be updating me and I will be updating mom because we don't keep secrets. But utilizing that we language and informing your children that you're communicating with one another helps remove them from the middle. Children can mitigate the differences between two homes, but what they can't mitigate is the conflict. And so they understand, let them know that mom and I, we're not always going to agree. Dad and I, we're not always going to agree. But what we can promise you is that we're going to communicate and we're not going to put you in the middle of our disagreements. Yeah. No, that's good. I like that. And and really, it fits right in with the Bill Eddy Biff method of being brief, informative, friendly, and firm, and be and and to that end, being clear, concise, respectful, cooperative. You know, all of the things that 
may not have happened when you were married, but you know, that's, that's over now. And we need to progress into something more, um, just healthier for the kids sake and, you know, do it for them if you can't do it for you. And, and by the way, it also brings you a lot of peace and <laughs> helps you as well in, in making that shift. So um, I, I have to imagine that some of the most difficult parts of co-parenting center around the most important days of the year, the holidays, the birthdays, the celebration kind of days, uh, what works here in your experience as far as just planning ahead and not making this as miserable as it can be? <laughs> There's a couple of things. Um, as a guardian ad litem, I oftentimes experience um, attorneys saying, we'll just go with the guideline holiday schedule. And to me, there's no cookie cutter answer in these situations. And so if one parent, if one parent um, really celebrates 4th of July and the other parent really celebrates Christmas Eve, then why do we have to have a schedule in which we alternate every 4th of July and every Christmas Eve? Because in that situation, the child is missing out on those big events every other year, just yeah. so that it can be quote unquote fair. So for example, <laughs> in Lane and my situation, it was really hard um, for my husband to accept that he was going to give up Christmas Eve every single year, every single year he was going to give up Christmas Eve, but in return, he got 4th of July every single year. And what really happened was over the years, it became an amazing tradition that when Lane came over to our house on Christmas morning at noon, every single year, the kids would blindfold her and walk her into the living room to see what Santa brought her. And that was such an amazing tradition for our family. My kids wait every single Christmas morning until noon till their big sissy comes so that they can open their presents and they can open their stockings. Lane is 20 and in college mm -hmm. and we gave our kids the option of opening their presents this year before Laney came and they hands down said no that is not <laughs> how it happens. Aww. We will wait till Lainey comes at noon, and that is what we will do. Aww, so that's it awesome. It's not a matter of a day. It is yeah. not a matter of that. It is a matter of creating these amazing traditions for our kids. Mm -hmm. And and how is that going to look? So it gets really frustrating for me is when parents are saying, Well, what's fair? Well, what's fair is that we create these amazing memories for a kid. It's yeah. about us, not about them. And so everyone talks about how their kids wake up at the crack of dawn on Christmas. Our kids wake up at 10. <laughs> they know they're not going to open their presents until their big sis comes. So that's just really it. And so what I would suggest to parents is they get out of their own way and stop fighting about a day 
because we can create amazing traditions for our kids. And so why not give them some rituals rather than alternating one, you know, one year versus the next? Why do we have to stick with these cookie cutter patterns for so that it's fair? Why can't we create new traditions for them so they can consistently know each and every year, this is what's going to happen? Why don't we give Memorial Day to one parent one year? I mean, give Memorial Day to one parent each and every year and Labor Day to the other parent. Like Mm -hmm. those things so that our children can have their their memories, I promise you, they will not remember that they missed hours. They, they don't count yeah. hours. They don't, they don't count hours, but what they will remember are the arguments that they went through um, because their mom and dad were fighting over hours. Yeah. So when we talk about holidays, stop thinking about what's fair to me. This is you grieving your your loss because yeah. you had imagined waking up every Christmas morning with your kids. Like that's what you dreamed about or you, mm-hmm. you dreamt about having that first communion with your kids and what that's going to look like. But that's you. That's yeah. you. Fighting for your dreams as opposed to providing your children the best feasible outcome that they could have under these new circumstances. Right. Yeah, so it's all it's all about compromise, right? I, I mean, a little bit emotional when we talk about that because <laughs> well, it's a big topic <laughs> of handling it right. So, and and it really just requires you know two parents who are willing to sit down with a calendar and figure out what is important to the kids. And that may be related to what things have been like up to this point, like what kind of traditions are already established and which side of the family do those exist on and which of those can we continue? And it also might be about developing new ones where we say, okay, yeah, up until now we've done it this way, but here's, what if we did this? And, you know, we orchestrate it this way so that both both parents are having the option to, Uh, kind of create new traditions and compromise so that it, it is still fair in the end. I mean, you know, if we really truly invest in creating something that works for everybody, especially the kids, right? Yeah. But my point is it's not necessarily what's fair to mom or dad. And that's when we need to get out of our own way. What's fair to kids. Right. Well, so um, now let's talk about some things we want to avoid. Um, You know, I think we've covered a lot of important things to do, to be consistent, to be trustworthy. Uh, Let's talk about some things to not do. And hopefully these are all super obvious things that no one listening here today would do, but it bears repeating. And let's talk a little bit about why we would not want to do any of these things. So number one is don't talk negatively about your co-parent to your children. Why do we not want to do that? If we were going to talk negatively about our co-parent to our children, we are not allowing them to have a positive relationship with their other parent. I mean, their other parent is a piece of them. So if Mm -hmm. you're going to talk negatively about mom and the child shares mom's anxiety, then you're throwing your child under the bus. I like to think of the example, if you're walking down the street 
and um, you see a stranger alongside the road, you're going to pull your kid closer, right? You're going to hold your kid tighter and your child is less likely to go up to that stranger, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're going to speak ill of your co-parent and then try to send your child over there, they're going to have great hesitancy and anxiety about going to a place where they know that you don't like that individual there. What a horrible position for them to go into. So if Mm -hmm. you want them to feel comfortable in having two homes, you have to help them feel comfortable. And in helping Mm -hmm. them feel comfortable, you may not like their other parent, but you need to clearly provide them the opportunity to have a free opportunity to like that other parent. And in doing so, you can't speak ill about the other parent. Right. And you definitely also cannot ask them to take sides. And I will also add to that, that telling them something bad that their other parent did is essentially asking them to take your side. Why are you telling them something bad? Mm -hmm. Why? Because you want to be the one that is viewed as the good parent. Mm -hmm. And if you have to be viewed as the good parent, that's not about your child. That's about you. That's very, very self-focused and it's not child-focused at all. Mm -hmm. Your children do not need to know the reason behind a divorce. That's like a rated R movie that your children aren't allowed to watch rated R movies for good reasons. (laughs) Their little heads can't process that stuff. That's a good analogy. Is like putting them in front of a vulgar rated R movie that they don't Mm -hmm. have the ability to process. Yeah. Why share that with them? Right. I like that. And also don't keep your child from their co-parent out of anger or spite. There's only one legitimate reason to withhold a child from their other parent, and that is for their safety. And I think that you really have to think about their parent, their, and I don't want to categorize this because this is for men as well as women, but who have been abused, who have been mistreated in their relationship, and you have legitimate fear um, about being around your co-parent because what you went through, but you cannot make that fear your child's fear. So it is safety. We really have to process, has my co-parent really ever harmed my child? And, and, and really is this, I'm going to keep them away for safety. Is this really about me projecting how discomfortable, how uncomfortable I am? Or is it really about my co-parent has put my child, our child, um, in legitimate harm's way? Because the judge is not going to say no contact or limited contact because a parent feeds their child McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you may argue, well, that's not safe. That's not in the child's best interest. Well, (laughs) I'm sorry. The judge is going to still allow contact. Well, how can you teach your child that it's not healthy to have McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Well, you're not going to throw your co-parent under the bus and say, oh, my gosh, he's feeding you all that crap. Instead, you feed your child during your parenting time what you believe is healthy. 
mm-hmm. and not say anything negative about what your co-parent feeds your child. Right. And you and and your child's going to learn from each of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lead by example for sure. Also, do not uh, as your ask your child to spy on the other parent and. Uh, that can take the form of you saying, just asking inappropriate questions of the child about what goes on at the other parent's house. It's better to just put all of that out of your mind completely and just focus on yourself and your child when they are with you, right? Yeah, I find oftentimes when we put down these rules, do not. So you just said, do not spy. Um, so do not ask your children to spy. So, well, I haven't asked my child to spy. <laughs> no, you did not directly ask your child to spy. But when you ask your child, did dad have anyone special over this weekend? <laughs> In essence, have asked your child to spy. Absolutely. Uh, I mean. And dig deeper. Why do you want to know? You yeah. divorced this person. I mean, honestly, that's the root of the issue is that you still care. What is happening in his life or her life? I want to know because I want to know who's around my children. Well, do you have control over that? Like, what are you going to do with that information when you get it? Like, yeah. I always say, don't ask if you don't want to know the answer. Like, don't, don't <laughs> ask the question if you don't want to know the answer. Yeah, good point. And also don't be inconsistent with the agreed upon parenting plan. It takes a long time to come up with that thing. Then it's better if everybody just sticks to it, right? Um, I completely agree. There is flexibility is great for kids. Absolutely wonderful. But if that flexibility causes more conflict, then the benefits of that flexibility do not outweigh the detriments. And your children need to know what to expect. And if you and dad or you and mom have agreed to switch the schedule, then let the kids know so that they know mom and I talked, dad and I talked, and we're switching weekends. Let Mm -hmm. them know in advance because consistency in that schedule is one thing that the children can count on. And having things that they can count on is very very helpful because they have to go back and forth between two homes. Mm-hmm. So they can't always count on having their favorite jeans or they can't always count on having their best buddy dog beside them. But if yeah. they can at least count on the schedule, then that's something they can um, hang their hat on. Yeah. And don't break your promises. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Everybody, yeah, flexibility is good and things change and people make mistakes. But if a pat, if a prom, a, if a pattern begins to form of promises being broken, that's a very different thing than just life happens, right? Yes. And um, I think that parents forget that children um, who have, are going through a divorce they are grieving the loss of their dreams too. So this is, this is trauma. This is trauma mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. And so they're viewing everything through a trauma lens. And when a child is viewing things through a trauma lens, they need honesty. They mm-hmm. need consistency. If you say you're going to be there at 3 p.m., 
you sure as heck better be there at 3 p.m. But when mom and I are together, when dad or I are together, we were late. It didn't matter to the kids. Right now, they need something to count on. They need to rely on something because Mm -hmm. what they had relied on, mom and dad being together, they they can't rely on that anymore. Mm -hmm. We need to give them something that they can rely on. Absolutely. And speaking of honesty, never lie to your kids. You know, there is such a fine line on this. You, You know, you, it's a fine line. And then again, it's not. You can say your dad didn't pay his child support this month, and that may be true, but it's also true that you could say, you know, I'm sorry, money's tight this month. What what else could we do to earn some extra money to help pay for soccer? That's just as true as your dad didn't pay child support this month. So it's really about framing a thought or a situation in a way that focuses on the positive and on what you can control. Nobody wants you to lie to your kids, but there's also a such thing as appropriate honesty. I completely agree. Um, And I find that a slippery slope because I've had parents say, well, I'm not going to lie to my kids. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not asking you to lie (laughs) to your children, but you don't have to tell them all your deep, dark secrets. And I think you need to ask yourself why, in fact, you are telling your child this. Is this information going to prove helpful to your child or harmful to your child? What can your child actually do with this information? There's a book called Divorce Poison um, by Dr. Warshak, and he has a list of questions that you can ask yourself um, in that book that relate to why am I actually telling my child this information? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you need to ask yourself why, you know, I'm not going to lie to my kids, but that doesn't mean your kids need to know everything. Right, for sure. Well, you know, I know there's a lot more that goes into this. We could talk about how to create a parenting plan. We could talk about how often a therapist gets involved and what's a good indicator that that's needed. You know, there's there's probably way more than we can cover here in one conversation. But, you know, what is important, I think, is just setting ground rules and being very clear about what the expectations are. And just, you know, I guess... One thing I want to just touch on really quickly, even though I know we could do a whole conversation just on this, uh, we haven't really talked a lot about how to co-parent with a high conflict personality. And that's partly intentional because of how long we could talk about that. But I think it's important to address it because there are always situations where women feel they can't do some of these very basic things that we have talked about here today for that reason. What would you say to that woman? Um, I have a very interesting story around this because I went to, I deal with high conflict people all the time, right? With Mm -hmm. various diagnoses. And so I was like, yes, I was going to the social work workshop and it was telling me how to deal with these people. And I was like, I'm so excited um, to go to this workshop. It was the most amazing workshop that I could ever have gone to. And it was ultimately life changing But it did not talk about the high conflict people at all. It talked about me. 
and yeah. talked about the importance of my need to perspective shift. Mm-hmm. It talked about what I had control over and how I could handle situations and put myself in a better mindset to deal mm-hmm. with that person so that yes. I wasn't in fight, flight, or freeze. So I think we have a lot of people coming into our offices saying, oh my gosh, but this person, and and they're constantly focused on their co-parent and how awful their co-parent is. Mm -hmm. And Naomi, one of our therapists in our office, she says, I only shoot for 50%. Um, (laughs) And what she's saying is if I could just get one of you to make a shift, one of you to make a change, I have improved the situation for your children at least 50%. But more than that, because of systems approach, ultimately your co-parent is going to have to modify their approach because the entire system would shift. So I think if I could offer one piece of advice to individuals that are dealing with a narcissist or dealing with a high conflict co-parent is to not use that as an excuse for your behavior and focus Mm -hmm. on what you can control. And that specifically is your responses. Because if you fail to do that, you will become your own worst enemy and you will Mm -hmm. create your biggest fears. There is nothing sadder for me to watch than a parent who has been emotionally or physically abused in a relationship lose their children because they could not step out of themselves and focus on themselves. So back to Mm self-care, back to um, accepting what you can control, and that is your responses. Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, that's my advice in that regard. Don't use that narcissist as an excuse or it's going to that you're going to be your own worst enemy. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And listeners, we know co-parenting can be challenging, especially in situations like that, but we also know it is possible with the right resources. And if you're in that difficult situation, you need more resources like coaching and therapy and the support of people around you who get what you're going through And so just, uh, you know, really think about it like any parenting situation, whether you're doing the parenting together with someone else or not, the focus has to always be on what's best for your children. So as we come to a close, Trina, do you have any other thoughts that we haven't explored today? I think we've done a great job exploring everything that I think is important for parents to know. So um, I know that you're here to help Annie and I greatly appreciate you being a resource. And if anyone wants to explore what the Lane Project has to offer, I am here as well. Absolutely. And I I do want to encourage listeners to reach out to you if they have questions about the Lane Project and just in general about co-parenting. So I want to say just thank you again for your insight and your wisdom today. Thank you listeners for tuning in. If you have further questions for me or for Trina, I hope you will take your next step to reach out. Email me at Annie at startingoverstronger.com for a personal introduction to Trina and whatever it is that you need to get answers and to make things happen for you and for your kids. We are here to get you connected to those resources. I'm happy to 
connect you with anyone on my divorce team. So join us again next week for more help as you divorce and hope as you are starting over stronger. Stronger.